5: Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our three-hour tour. I'm Tom Sumner. Starting, uh, well, uh, we got a great show today. Coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour, we're going to talk with uh, a uh, real estate and mortgage uh, industry professional who has uh, written a book called The Broker, Deal Steals, and Moving Forward Should Be very interesting, uh, Sidney Potter will be joining us uh, during that third hour, and uh, coming up before that, we're going to talk with um, the author, this is uh, fascinating, um, it's a story about Josephine Baker, the first black woman to star in a major motion picture, and uh, Terry Francis has uh, written a book called Josephine Baker's Cinematic Prison, it should be very interesting and very appropriate for Black History Month. and But yet we're going to start out with something uh, that's that's kind of exciting. We have uh, a, a new book that's uh, out, and we have the, the author joining me by phone here in just a moment. The book is called Behind the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic. The author is uh, David Cochran, and he joins me by phone. Hi, David. Welcome to the show
6: all right
5: thank you for having me um David I'm not even sure where where to start with this uh, although um, my significant other Sandy is a a paramedic and she's been deployed with uh, FEMA initiatives uh, as well and and she's told me some interesting stories and it seems like anybody that has a, a job that, that takes them a little bit off the beaten path, somebody's going to be uh, coming up to you and saying, you should write a book. Is that what happened to you, David?
6: Uh, no, actually. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> yeah, I, I was actually doing some writing beforehand and uh, on these de- FEMA deployments. It was kind of a good way to relieve stress. Um, but then, you know, we were talking with my partner and I, and she was like, you know, I wish people kind of really knew what exactly we were going through. Um, you know, it, it, media always like tries to like build up appreciation for first responders, but don't really know firsthand what exactly we're dealing with. Uh, so that's kind of what led to the book.
5: No, we really don't. And and uh, in a press release that that I I was reading about the uh, about the book and your story, um, it it hints at at hurricane relief and COVID deployments, and I don't think a lot of people realize how many people like you, David. Um, just grabbed a go bag and took off to to help out, like you did in New York, with uh, COVID-19 related uh, emergency activities.
6: Yep, yeah. Um, So uh, as your uh, wife Sandy does and whatnot, the FEMA, they activate the national response team for any natural disasters like hurricanes, blizzards, forest fires, so be it. Uh, Obviously this pandemic, has been a tricky one to deal with because there is no specific hot zone. It's it's all across America. So it's uh we we've been sent all over the place trying to keep up with it.
5: Is is that the uh the only significant difference between responding uh uh say for example to a hurricane? No, actually
6: the, I mean the 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 biggest difference is hurricane like I said you have that specified area but then you also know Okay, this is going to be a search and rescue. There's probably going to be some physical uh, or like some trauma involved. Here, one, we have no idea what well, like throughout this past year, we had no idea what the symptoms were that we were dealing with. We had no idea how exactly it was going to affect each person going from household to household, and not, not to mention that there's that fear factor. You know, everyone knows like once you get past the storm, now it's are just like okay, now they're calm. Here, the whole deployment or the whole FEMA deployment was. You never know what was coming the next day. It never died down per se. So it, it it was you you you've kind of followed that same structure of like this is how we're going to go into it, but we were all blind to how exactly to deal with it.
5: And how did how did that exactly work, David? You, you know, you you get the call. I mean, it's it's like any other call you get, sort of at the beginning. You know, you you grab your bag and go to where they tell you, but. Once you got there, you know, in a hurricane, you set up, you know, a a command center and and, uh, you go out, you know, search and rescue. You know, there's kind of a standard operating procedure. But what happened after you land where you're supposed to be?
6: So, uh, like you said, yep, they set up the the FOB, the, the command center. Uh, and then you're set up into a task force and strike teams, uh, which uh, help, one, strike teams are going to help relieve hospital stress by doing inter-facility transports, like taking a stable patient out of the hospital to open up another bed for someone new. And then you're going to have the task forces, which were, I was a part of, which helps assist the local counties or the city with 911 calls to keep up with it. Uh, so you get your assignments, and every a day to day-to-day, you're looking at around... 12 to sixteen hours every day uh, with no days off until you're you're sent home so for for me it was thirty seven consecutive days of wow. sixteen hours a day in New York and then in South Texas it was thirty two consecutive days of about twelve hours a day
5: now what uh, about equipment? I'm thinking specifically you know for you if you're you know chasing down nine one one calls that assumes you have a vehicle were there enough Vehicles to go around? How did how did that, that um happen?
6: Yes, yeah, there were. I guess technically enough vehicles, but it's kind of hard to say because the the trucks or the ambulances that we were going around in had about four hundred fifty thousand miles on it. Breaking AC lights, sirens sometimes weren't working.
1: <laughs> uh, the,
6: equipment, <laughs> the equipment itself we were using were ripping. Is like oh jeez, but um. And, and uh, in New York, the equipment that we were dealing with, because we were so short-staffed in masks and gowns and oxygen and all. Actually, the first three days we were in New York City, um, when it was the epicenter, there, we had about 36 calls. And of those 36, 16 of them, I believe, were COVID-related, and we had no equipment. Uh, we had a typical surgical mask and gloves. And that was it. Uh, we had no face shield, no gown. Uh, No, and that was at the beginning of all this when it felt like the world was ending and we had no idea
1: what we were dealing with.
5: Yeah, and and we were really kind of learning day by day depending on uh, uh, bits of information as it was learned basically by people like you on the front line reporting back and and collecting that information and saying, well, we know it does this and we know it does that. Um, When you... uh, With that kind of contact, David, uh, did you contract COVID at any point?
6: I never got officially tested because when I believe I had it, I didn't qualify at the time. I lost my sense of smell and taste for a week and had the cough, but those symptoms weren't severe enough to justify a test. This was back in March. Uh, So I I never officially got tested, but I believe, yes, I did have it.
5: And, And... how long before testing, I, I, I mean, at that point, you know, almost a year ago, when this was just beginning, there weren't enough tests to get tested? No.
6: no, and that was one of the harder things with EMS, was that we didn't really have the luxury to just go get tested, like, every day or whenever we were concerned to put our mind at ease. So a lot of EMS personnel were sleeping in their cars for like weeks on end because they were too afraid to take of anything they possibly contracted from the shift back home with them. Uh, And same goes for the people that were sent on the deployments. They were, when they returned, they didn't just go home. They were in a hotel or motel or someone's basement for 14 days until it was considered safe to see relatives again.
5: Now you live and work in, in Philadelphia, right? Yep. Yes, sir. So did you then drive to New York or did you fly?
6: We drove. Uh, luckily for us, the trip to New York is a little around two hours. Not a bad drive.
5: Yeah, I see, I think that would make more sense. And, and air travel was um, kind of sketchy.
6: Yeah. I mean, uh, it was hard to get flights in New York in general. Uh, we got lucky. We were supposed to sleep in our ambulances uh, for the whole deployment, which would have been very exhausting considering that we would be treating these ill patients and then would be sleeping in that same vehicle that night um <laughs> the, the but, ultimate
5: uh, shelter in place <laughs> yeah, exactly and,
1: <laughs>
6: not to mention this that was again towards those winter months too so it was it was some cold nights um but uh luckily uh LaGuardia airport uh Shut down uh, to only essential flyers and it kind of freed up a lot of the hotels around. So they able to put us up in a hotel, uh, which was nice because besides that, we wouldn't have been showering for maybe two, three weeks at a time.
5: Had the restrictions been put on people to, to stay at home and restaurants closed and all of that when you got to New York, I would think it'd be a very different scene to drive into. New York City without all the traffic and hustle and bustle and different than your hurricane deployments where you drive in and there's a lot of debris and, and you can tell you're where you're supposed to be.
6: Yeah, it, driving to New York was one of the eeriest things I've done in my life because you know you're so used to going to this massive city where it's bumper to bumper traffic, sidewalks packed, you know, it's just constant noise. Here you drive in; you could drive down Times Square. Not a single body was on that strip at that point. Uh, buildings were dark. It was quiet. I've never seen a city, especially New York City, this shut down and quiet.
5: That yeah, was, that I would think crazy. that'd be fairly—I uh, don't know—dystopian. You know, I imagine. Um, it, you know, I—I remember seeing pictures. In in those early days when everything first shut down, and that was eerie. But I can't imagine being the only thing moving in that environment. Yep.
6: Oh yeah, yeah. It was. Uh, it was. It was definitely. I mean, you could see the desperation too. When we were driving in, they did like a whole like spectacle. Like it was like a parade of ambulances that came in, and people like were hanging out their windows, clapping and cheering, and holding up signs and thanking us for being there so you could tell oh, that it was nice. just a city that desperate need uh, cuz they they were they were so overwhelmed the FDNY you know the big fire EMS company in New York City uh they were so overwhelmed they were facing about 20% shortages in staff across the whole city how much is the, the vi- about 20% wow so each station was missing about like five ambulance worth of people because the the, the virus was just tearing through their stations already when we got there, um, which why why they, they couldn't keep up. It, their average day-to-day call in New York City is around like 3,500 3, to 4,000, which is a lot. Uh, but when we got there, they had 7,000 calls, and they had 500 people on hold on 911, and wow. people were waiting about 9 to 12 hours for an ambulance to show up. Wow. So they were swamped.
5: That's that's amazing. Uh, my guest is David Cochran. He's written a book called Behind the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic. And we're going to talk some more uh, with David. David, uh, I have to take a break here. Can you stick around a little bit so we can talk some more? Of course. Great. Of course. Um, if you're listening to us on WFOV, our voices radio, 92.1 LPFM in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. Uh, we're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then uh, we will return and talk some more with uh, David Cochran, author of Behind the Mask, untold stories of EMS in a pandemic, and probably in other uh, circumstances. Um, But uh, don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. we got lots more of the Tom Sumner program coming up straight ahead.
1: Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. ti double G-Er,
5: That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner's program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs>
4: Remember, your voice matters. Wearing
5: a mask helps prevent the spread of COVID-19. Wear your mask correctly. Wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds before putting on your mask. Holding the ear loops or ties, make sure the mask covers your nose and mouth and secure it around your chin. Try to fit it snugly against the sides of your face. Make sure you can breathe easily and keep the mask on the entire time you're in public. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash coronavirus.
4: Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue now with my conversation with the author of a new book called uh, Behind the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic by David S. Cochran. And David joins me by phone. David, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. And sorry to make you sit through all that. (laughs) Of course. No worries at all. (laughs) I, I feel bad picking on somebody that had to sleep in an ambulance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah. Uncle, I don't have to do it too often <laughs>
5: well but but yet that sort of comes with the territory um are you are you married do you have family uh no
6: uh not yet um getting serious with someone but no marriage yet
5: but does it but does that make it maybe easier for you to just up and take off when needed somewhere else where where they need a lot of people uh, in a concentrated effort?
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, obviously not myself as married, but I worked with a lot of people that are older and they have families, and it's a big sacrifice. You know, there's a lot of calls that are made at night after the shift to their significant other, you know, kind of informing me on what their kids have been up to and how they've been helping out with the kids. And it, but that's just EMS as a whole. Unfortunately... I don't want to like, get into a conversation about the pay for EMS, but the, it's definitely not as high as, as we would like it. And, and EMS, some EMTs and medics are forced to work nearly 40, 60, some even work 70 hours every single week just to keep up with the bills for their family. So even without a pandemic or without a FEMA deployment, FEMA, EMS is left working insane hours just to keep up with the day-to-day bills.
5: And and FEMA doesn't just, uh, you know, go through a a directory or a union roster and pick people. Um, How do they they decide who they're going to call on when they need extra help?
6: Yeah, um, so FEMA, as I said earlier, is contracted with the National Emergency Response Team. Um, And to become a member of this, you have to have a certain amount of experience underneath your belt and you put in an application, and they'll review the application, and once they approve it, you're now listed under this list of people from station to station, and wherever they seem deem it's fit to pull from that station, let's say if there's a hurricane in Carolina, well, they're going to pull people from the east coast, or if there's a forest fire in California, they're going to pull people from the west. So it's, it's people from across the nation uh, that are a part of this, this response team that have to have a to-go bag in their trunk at all times, and if you're called, you could be sent to that disaster zone within two hours of being called.
5: Really, it's it's that quick.
6: Oh yeah, yep. I was uh, I was uh, sitting down for dinner when I was called for Texas, and I'm not even kidding. Before I could even fi- before my family even finished their dinner, I was already heading to the airport uh, now- for. Uh, a Sorry,
5: go ahead. No, no I was just going to say, tell me, tell me about Texas. When did you go to Texas?
6: So we went to Texas in, uh, towards the end of July. It was about a second spike uh, down in the southern region of the state.
5: And but it was COVID-related. The reason that I say that is because, you know, Texas just within the last couple of weeks has been through a very, very tough time.
6: Yes. Oh, yes. That was covid related but it also had to be simultaneous. There just happened to be a hurricane also striking the southern region of it as well. So uh, our first day there, we dealt with hurricane efforts. Uh, luckily, it was only Category 1, so it wasn't uh, too massive of a storm. Uh, but then that lasted for about a week, and we, were, we had to drive across the storm, which was definitely thrilling, but not something I would want to do again. Uh, we, there's about 18 inches of torrential downpour, 60-mile-per-hour winds. Ambulances were getting flooded left and right. I saw panels and signs getting ripped out uh, as we were driving across uh, one of these counties. Uh, but then, obviously, after the storm passed through, we helped out with that relief, then it transitioned over to COVID.
5: And Texas is a uh, bit of a hike from uh, Philadelphia, David. What, what were the circumstances that had them pulling people from that far away?
6: So again, with the, the the virus affecting every station across the entire nation, there was so much shortage of staff that everywhere that a lot of stations couldn't afford to send people. Uh, like uh, Philadelphia, we were actually have to we were taken off the rotation because we were so short staffed here in Philadelphia. We couldn't afford to to send our own people to help out in other counties. So uh, that's why my strike team for both texas and new york was made up of everyone in between pennsylvania all the way over to california and and 15 different states in between
5: is is there um standard training that you go through to be part of the response team nothing more than
6: just your standard emt or medic training uh, there is no, uh, like I said, there is no playbook for how to deal with it. So, well, and that's we what that's we what were. I was
5: getting at, David. It, 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 does it end up being you just kind of have to make it up for the the situation you're in when you get there, organizationally?
6: Yeah, uh, like I said, um our first day in New York, we within three hours of arriving, we were all checked in, we were assigned to task force and strike teams. We were strapped a radio. We were stra we were given a list of hospitals. And we were sent out for me. I was particularly sent out to the Queensborough. So we were just sent out to these different boroughs, these territories. We had no idea. Uh, and we just had to wing it.
5: <laughs> and, and how do you find your way around? Do you use GPS and stuff? I, you know, it seems like you go into an area that you're not familiar with. It, it'd be tough to even find places that you're sent to go.
6: Yeah, we were, uh, we relied heavily on GPS. That first night alone, within, I think, eight hours, we were, had around 10 to 12 calls. And we were, like, we would show up to these apartment complexes and have no idea how to get into the apartment. So we would be asking, like, people on the street, like, hey, do you know this? Do you know that? Can you do that? And luckily, <laughs> there's some New Yorkers that were, uh, grateful enough to, uh, grateful enough to help us, which is nice.
5: Yeah, but, that uh, is, that is nice. Um, <laughs> with the, now, how does how does the call go out? Because I I would imagine that when the decision is made, that maybe as many as hundreds of people are called to go into an area, or is it not that many?
6: Um. Yeah. So for Texas, I believe it was three hundred. New York, it was five hundred, and that's like they call it like the first wave, uh, and then the second wave is kind of on standby. Uh, until like, if there's an ambulance, like a crew that goes down sick, which we were dealing with a lot in particular in New York, um, you know, they would have to quarantine for 14 days. Obviously they couldn't be on the street. So FEMA would have to call in another, another unit, another ambulance. Uh, so like I said, the first wave is about 500 to 300. And then they had a second wave of maybe a little bit less, but pretty much equivalent, ready to go in case they needed to be extra assistance.
5: How do those calls go out are they, are they robocalls? are they bulk texts what how do you, how do you get notified that it's time to grab your go bag and
4: go
6: So it's a little bit of a chain of command uh, obviously FEMA makes the decision and then they reach out to the stations that they're contracted with and then each station has like a particular person or at least my station has like a, a particular person that they contact directly you like hey we need uh, let's say twelve personnel, six vehicles uh so on and so forth, and then he or she will put together that uh specific request and so then they'll call and they'll go down their list so for Philadelphia, we have about forty people on that emergency response team list, and he'll just go down and start making calls
5: and it's it's with, um and and they're individual calls that are made, literally hundreds mm-hmm.
6: of them yep yeah i've uh so I've been on about three FEMA deployments. I've been woken up at two a.m. saying, "All right, pack your bags. We need to go." <laughs> uh, so they can come at any time during the day or night.
5: <laughs> now, the book, as as I mentioned, um, did when did when did you write this?
6: Uh, so a lot of it I wrote while I was in New York City and Texas uh, at night. It was kind of a good way to kind of relieve. The stress of what I was dealing with and what
5: decompress I, a little bit.
7: Yeah,
6: yeah, and uh, it almost like was treated like a journal at first, and then I obviously shaped it into being a book that could allow readers to kind of feel that unfiltered uh, side of EMS and really see, unfortunately, the horrific things that we've been dealing with, and to gain a deeper appreciation for the sacrifices. Uh, so I, I touched a lot on. Like, for New York, we were dealing with about 300 cardiac arrests a day with nearly 270 of them uh, dying, unfortunately. And on top of that, we were dealing with... Is that
5: extraordinarily high? And and why was it, if it it was extraordinarily high, why was it because you couldn't get them into hospitals quickly enough?
6: Yeah, and so when you said earlier about um, how we were experiencing things before, like the CDC or anyone was even acknowledging it, we noticed that we would go into these patient households and they would be talking normally like you and I have, but, uh, but they knew they had the virus. But little did they know that the virus is actually restricting their oxygen supply to their body so much that a normal oxygen input in the body is about 94% and up, 96% and up. They were sitting around 70%. So their organs were working overtime without them even knowing it. So patients that we had calls, you know, one week, five days later, we're calling again because they collapsed into a cardiac arrest. And to, to give you an idea of the numbers, the coolest stat I saw while we were there, I mean, I won't say it's cool, but the most interesting mm-hmm. stat I saw while we were there was from, I think it was like March 15th to March 22nd in 2019, New York City only had 64 cardiac arrests a day with uh, only about 30% of them dying. Whereas that same week in 2020, they had 300 cardiac arrests a day with over 70% of them dying. So it, it, it just showed that there was something there that, that was kicking the crap out of these poor people's organs without them even knowing it.
5: Wow. Um, yeah. now I mentioned the book was called, um, behind the mask untold stories of EMS in a pandemic. Um, how, how many untold stories, how could these untold stories be told and still uh, be HIPAA compliant? Yes,
6: yeah, so that's obviously, I, I have to make sure not to violate any HIPAA laws. So I, there are no specific names, there are no specific locations or even times to go with the events. Uh so it's all anonymous. It's, it's. There's no names, locations, or times in mentioned with anything. Obviously, in the New York chapter, it's in New York City, but there is no specific location in New York to where this thing could be tied.
5: You know, we talked about how um, how memorable it was uh, to be driving into a basically uh, New York City in a in a ghost town kind of environment, where a few people on the street and and. Uh, no traffic and and all that kind of stuff. But what were some of the other um, memorable uh, events and and images that you that you tell in the book? Uh,
6: so it's all not negative. Uh, there's positive that always accompanies negativity. And that one of the the greatest things I'm sure you or it, it, many people have heard about this. Uh, it was a big thing in New York City at 7 p.m. Uh, Everyone would line the streets of Manhattan clapping and cheering and sending out a little appreciation to EMS, whether it be for five minutes, ten minutes, but every night. And the the coolest moment I ever experienced was I just happened to be driving a a patient to the ambulance, and we were heading down this main street in downtown Manhattan. And almost as if I was in a movie, there just happened to be not a single other car on this road for the three miles that we were driving down. And it just happened to be right when the clock struck seven, so we were driving just a single ambulance down the street, and we were swarmed on both sides of people shouting from literally the rooftops and holding up signs. Joggers were stopping and holding up heart signs and clapping. It, it really refueled us to know what we were doing was making a difference.
5: Yeah, I would think that kind of uh, that kind of appreciation would be a little bit overwhelming because a lot of times. You're you go into an emergency situation where people aren't really able to express their appreciation. You do what you do, and you know get them shipped out and and where they're supposed to be, and then on to the next thing.
6: Right, and and unfortunately, that's that that's why that the moment was so special for me and EMS in general because a lot of EMS is facing a lot of negativity because unfortunately, you're seeing. Family relatives and and friends of family in their own homes on their worst days, obviously surrounded by loved ones. So whenever you're you're interacting with people, it's usually a lot of tension. It's a lot of people are worried and scared. So there's a lot of people that that obviously are going to naturally express a little bit of anger towards EMS. I had that actually that same day in the morning. I had a gentleman come up and spit directly on my face and walk away no rhyme or reason to it just came up and spit on me so that 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 moment of appreciation it 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 really means a lot for ems
5: yeah i would imagine um is there um now what now what does that do to your home base when when you and others are called out and deployed to a hurricane, or for pandemic uh, relief efforts?
6: So it's a, it's a team effort. Uh, I mean, it wasn't just my home base. It was home bases across the nation. Uh, people were working double, triple overtime to make up, to keep up with the call volume in their own town. I know whenever there is a group sent out from my station, uh, they usually send out uh, a group message, like a group a mass text to everyone in the station be like, all right, these people I'm missing for this shift, this shift and this shift. We need as much coverage as we can get. And everyone steps up to the plate and fills out their shifts.
5: And no, and no animosity.
6: Nope. Now everyone understands that it's almost like a, that's why I say one team, one mission that we're all in this together. So it, it's of course, it's going to come at the sacrifice of our own well being and social life, but we know we have to work together to get through it.
5: And, and, um, it this is fascinating because I know somebody who did this kind of work and and i'm always surprised at the number of people that are willing to go where there's a problem um is is there this this sense when you see something on on television some tragedy or disaster or like we saw in texas uh you know the last couple of weeks with uh, you know, the power grid shutting down and, and uh, you know, water freezing up and pipes breaking and, you know, all that chaos that was weather-related. Um, do do you see that and, and think, I wish I could get down there to help?
6: Yeah, it's it's actually funny you say that because when this all first started back in March, I was, you. I, my girlfriend can testify for me, I was pacing back and forth. I, for for two weeks while this was all gone. It's like, why why hasn't FEMA activated us? Why are we not out there helping people? I even called uh, that specific guy I was talking about earlier, who is in direct contact with FEMA, uh, and be like, hey, have they called yet? Like, well, I've not, and just happened to be that night they they sent out the word uh, for us to go. But I there's just a sense of of pride that comes with the members of all EMS, in particular with the the FEMA unit, that. You see these people facing these tragic times and these dark times, and and you want to be that source of hope, that that beacon that they can look to, to help them through. And unfortunately, it, it's going to come at the cost of your own well being with some of the things you're seeing. But at the same time, your sacrifices are helping them make it through. And it's just it, it's a surreal feeling, at least.
5: When um, how, how does FEMA? Um, get activated for a particular uh, event? Unfortunately, I don't know that specifically. Um, I do know
6: that with storms, it's a little bit easier. They have a cookie-cutter model with how they deal with storms because you can project it uh, with today's technology. You can project, oh, this storm is three days out, so maybe a day before it strikes the coast, we'll get units into place and get the territories all mapped out. Here, it's been completely spontaneous. As soon as a hot zone arises and and hospitals are starting to become overwhelmed, that's when uh, they say, "Hey, we need to get people down there as soon as possible to start bringing relief to this area."
5: And and what about the hospitals? Because that was that was a time when there were hospital ships in the in the harbor and uh, makeshift hospitals set up. Were was that going on when you were in New York, for example?
6: Oh yeah, New York and Texas both both uh, deployments repeated itself almost to it of the same exact call volume for the first two weeks. We were so overwhelmed with calls and hospitals. There were hospitals continuously on diversion, meaning that we couldn't bring patients to them because they just literally couldn't handle it. And in New York, there was emergency rooms that we show up to. And they didn't have beds for hours, so we would have to convert our ambulances into additional beds. And the doctors and nurses would roll their equipment into the ambulance and treat that as just another emergency room, uh, which was tough because now that kept us off the street for however long it took for this patient to, to be better.
5: Right, right. Um, so, What about the, um, uh, the, the temporary hospital setups did you have any experience with those
6: yeah so the strike teams i was talking about dealt more with that because they were bringing the stable patients to these temporary hospitals uh so i not so much the 911 side we were still going directly to the emergency rooms uh but from what i heard the temporary hospital was they were working so hard to get patients out obviously to open up beds that they needed a new place, a new source of oxygen, almost. There were two hospitals in New York City that their systems ended up being jammed in the middle of the night. And we were sent out. We were woken up from a dead sleep. that, Hey, we need to evacuate these hospitals immediately. Uh, because, obviously, ventilators was has been a big deal throughout this. And these people relied heavily on oxygen. Especially to, in the
5: beginning. Uh,
6: oh, yes. Yeah. And... So the, these uh, relief, these pop-up tents, you start seeing them everywhere. Um, they were fascinating, the tour, the, how they, they built these together. And you just see tubes and tubes and tubes across the ceilings of oxygen just flowing these each individual rooms. Um, so I never dealt directly with it, but they were, uh, they were fascinating to see.
5: And, and what about the oxygen that's available on the, uh, on the ambulances? How does that work? So Are we have tanks? a main,
6: yes, yes. So we have a main tank and we have uh, a couple little tanks and typically for a little tank, if you're giving about like just a nasal cannula, like through the nose or a mask, you can get anywhere from, depending on how much oxygen, 20 minutes to an hour. as If you really stretch it. So we only have so much oxygen on the ambulance that, you know, obviously crews were constantly having to to recycle out. And that was another issue that, hospitals were asking us like do we have any oxygen to spare and we would have to say no because we we just there was just there wasn't enough oxygen for us because we weren't getting the tanks in on time to replenish our ambulances
5: yeah how do you how do you do that do you do you go on a run and then you have to go back and and reset and then go on another run how, how does that work or or were you in a situation where you just had to go right from run to run
1: well,
6: we were, we were definitely in a situation we had to go run to run. It was almost like dispatchers, the people that tell us where we need to go, were, were holding their breath because there were so many crews that they would finish up a call and be like, all right, we have to go out of service for 10 minutes to restock. And like I said, there's, there's a point in time when each crew was running 10 to 12 calls a day where most people in a 12-hour shift, you'll see, like, depending on where you're at, three to seven calls. So we were definitely overwhelmed. And so you would hear dispatchers, like the urgency, like, all right, hurry up. Let us know when you're back in service. So it, it almost felt like a NASCAR pit stop where we were running around, <laughs> fueling the tanks in. It, yeah.
5: Well, David, this is a fascinating story and good for you for writing this book, uh, Behind the, the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic. We've got to wrap it up, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find, a, find out more about you and the book and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? Yes.
6: Um, So my website is www.davidscochran.com. My books are also available directly from Amazon. Uh, It's free on Kindle or paperback form as well. And thank you so much for having me on the show.
5: Well, David, thank you. And, uh, you know, keep up the good work. Of course. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate it. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Once again, that was uh, David S. Cochran, author of Behind the Mask, Untold Stories of EMS in a Pandemic. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
7: Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program.
5: If you are sick with
3: COVID-19
2: or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you're worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, Visit cdc.gov.
5: Hey, this is Tom. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hopper. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Mountains.
7: Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray.
3: Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office.
7: I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill.
5: The Tom Sumner Program celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan.
4: the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath.
1: The Time Sumner Program.com The Time Sumner
4: Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Programme.
2: I what we're going to do. Why? First of all, we work this show with three cameras. Three cameras? So we have three cameras. We have one in the center over here, uh-huh. we have one on the side, oh, yeah. and one over here on this side. Oh, yeah. Now, all three of these cameras are immobile. They're where? They're fixed. I didn't know that? Yes, they're stationary cameras. Oh, oh, oh. They don't move. You said fixed, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? Well, they're fixed in place. I had my cat fixed, we can go there Oh, now. no,
1: no. It's, it's not the same thing at
2: all. Oh, so, terrible Tom, we used to call him. So So, so. so uh, what's important is. Oh, he was the terror of the neighborhood. We had to have him figure, Yeah, but I want you to pay attention to He just me. sits in the bread box and stares at me now. No, no, no. It's very important. We call him Sam Spade. All right. Just forget about your because I we'll have to explain to you what we're going to do. Well, the important thing is just look at the camera where you see the red light. First of all, we'd like you to uh, tell us something about yourself. We know that you are a doctor. Yes, a DM. An MD. 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 (laughs) Doctor, in uh, in medicine today, it seems to me that most men are specializing. Well, what's happened an awful lot today in medicine is that we have found that uh, in medicine that many of the people, particularly the doctors, are specializing. Yes, well, I'm certainly glad you cleared that up for it. Uh, we were uh, talking about that, old last Thursday, not the doctor place. The hospital. The hospital. The hospital. The hospital. And, uh, and how about you, doctor? What's yours? Uh, bourbon, if you have no, it. No. Well, doctor, I, I mean, in, uh, in what field do you operate, sir? Well, we don't operate in the field. We have a new building. No. now. Building. Some of the older ladies complain of grass stains.
1: Uh, of
2: well, are you an obstetrics? No, we're down next to the elevator. no.
1: I, I mean, you do have a
2: specialty. Someone comes to see you. Your name's on the door there. Oh, yes. And uh, it's yes. your specialty. Right. I'm a surgeon. Surgeon. C-E-R-G-O-N.
1: <laughs> You're a general
2: surgeon? Yes, I do. You, uh, you do general surgery? Yes, I am. Which well, whichever is correct, of course, we realize you don't operate alone. No, we like to have a patient there. No. Uh, you can go cutting right through the wood, otherwise. Doctor, I mean that you do have a crew to assist you. Oh, fine. You I see, may. I'm asking you these questions because I would imagine there must be thousands of young men around the country. Well, there must be. I can't get on a golf course. Yeah, yes, I know. Oh, they're but, but i, I am been watching our program tonight. And I'll bet you a lot of these young fellas are interested in medicine. Well, I hope so, uh, because we've got a lot of it we're trying to sell. No, uh, no, they don't want to buy any medicine. We're overstocked in Oreo Mass. No, no, doctor, I mean, some of these young fellas watching the show tonight might have an interest in a medical career. Oh, hallelujah. Well, we certainly need them. Well, we need them down at the doctor's place, oh, place. I think these young fellows should realize you just don't get to be a doctor. No, sir, you've got to study. You study. Study. The study. <laughs> Long, hard period. Drink. Certainly are. You have to study everything. Study is as study does. Isn't that the you truth? You must read lots of pamphlets oh, yes. and hang around the drugstore. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, pharmaceuticals is uh, a great study. It certainly can. Yeah, yeah. Doctor, you were very high in your class. No, I get high on weekends. No, 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 no <laughs> doctor. You, you graduated magna cum laude. Magna cum That's right, yes. right there. Number one in the class of over 400. 412, yes, sir. I was class president and uh, captain of the lacrosse team. Is that so? And I was also the valedictorian. Uh, valedictorian. the valedictorian of sure. your class. In your valedictory address, doctor, you included a motto. I certainly will. Now, I haven't heard this motto, but I understand this is the thought. That you claim is responsible for having put... ...put you in this eminent position you now uh, enjoy in the medical world. Medical world is as medical world does. Well, that isn't the motto. No, 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 no. Well, I wonder if we could prevail upon you, doctor, to pass your motto on to our television audience at this time. You know it might help some of these young fellows would like to follow in your footsteps. I'd be more than coy. Oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. I knew you were talking Thank you. The motto that has helped me through life and through school, and it goes... ...how many times have we jumped over and said to ourselves, let's go back... These are the new things, and throw out, and we go back and say, how many, and that's not enough, we must feel in our hearts that the highway of life is paved, and we must walk the white line of life and know that each of us that has ever and gone back has known that the new... Don't touch me.
1: The newness, we can feel
2: that as you lift it, lift it as you... Know not why, but why know not? These are the things that we worry. All of us gather a whole big bunch of it and throw it against the wall sometimes. <laughs> <Jeez, Dr. Edwards. laughs> I'm sure there was something in there for almost everybody. Oh, so, yeah. I want to thank you for taking some of your valuable time and spending it here with us tonight. Well, I feel that if I can bring, uh, and, and whether or not... Yes, well, I'm still working on throwing it against the wall, so we'll work on But I, I did want to ask you one question before you left, Doctor. Uh, you're familiar with this great problem that's uh, uh, just covering the whole world, the population oh. exposure. Oh, big problem, big, big problem. problem. And, and I, oh. I don't have the figures oh. readily at hand, but I understand that somewhere in the world there's a woman having a baby every couple of seconds. Yes, that's the problem. We've got to find her and stop her. Oh. All right, Doctor. <laughs>
7: you can't depend on anything the leaders that we follow they can't even write their name but here we are in america ain't it just a shame how it goes on and on our children going hungry things have turn to crime and politicians know it's true but they ain't got no time we are in America Nothing seems to change It just goes on and on and on but There may be people who truly do care Maybe mighty but still they lack like the key. I pray that someday these people will finally declare Not even heroes can do it all What you think when you see women being beaten How does it make you feel to know the one you love is cheating That's the life in America Someone stop the train, it can't go on and on Ooh, and where's the Constitution when you need it to refer The things that are unlawful, have the papers all been burned? Yeah, that's the life in America. Should I still remain or just go on and on and on? Now there may be people who truly do care. Maybe mighty, but still in lack of I feel that someday this world... Stay inside with me You might just save a life Or two or three or four or maybe five Don't you know? Come on! Come on, get out of here!